All right, everybody, if you would, turn to Acts chapter 15. And as you are turning, um, or as you are getting the last of your coffee, you're totally welcome to do that also. Uh, I'm going to ask the key famous question that I always ask, and that is, where do we find the theme of the book of Acts? 1-8, indeed. All right, or who, I don't know who said it, but Acts 1-8, and I wanted to, I think I pointed something out a couple of weeks ago, I want to draw attention to this, that in addition to being the theme that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, it also serves as kind of an outline for the book. Where did we first see the gospel make a splash in the book of Acts? What city? What city did we first see there be a kind of a, a manifestation of the Holy Spirit and a gospel proclamation? In the book of Acts, where do we see it? Jerusalem. Uh, then we see it spread to Judea. And then we do hit Samaria right next, and then we get into the Gentile nations in the uttermost parts of the world. Uh, you will note that in chapters 13 and 14, Paul and Barnabas go on a missionary journey. They're in the church at Antioch. There are prophets there that say, this is what God's saying. We need to set apart these guys and send them out. They do. They pray over them, and they do this little sweep, uh, this little circle through what we would probably call Asia Minor. And then they come back to Antioch. And that's where we wrap up in chapter 14 to begin chapter 15. A huge question has come up as a result of all these Gentiles coming to Christ. That big question is, do these guys need to follow the Old Testament law? Um, we're going to cover several things. And I just want to tell you, what we see here in chapter 15 covers a really critical theological topic that we better know about. And key thing also is I want us to pay attention to the reasoning that the apostles put forth because it tells us something about how we do theology. All right? So we're going to jump right to it. Um, I'm going to pray and then have somebody read. Father God, uh, be with us as we open the word. Illuminate it by your Holy Spirit. Give us clear understanding. God, I pray that we would know the truth, that we would proclaim the gospel, that you would give us confidence in our faith because you have saved us to the uttermost. Be glorified. May I only teach that which is in accordance with your word, and nothing more, nothing less than what you want today. In Christ's name, amen. All right, could I get someone to read chapter 15, verses 1 through 5? Or wait a minute, that's 1 through... Yeah, let's do through 5. Go for it, brother. Wait a minute. Where, I'm sorry, brother. Hold on. Where are you at? I was going to say, that's a great passage. And, and I would even say a related passage, but I'm like, I'm like, I don't know what translation that is. I'm calling those translators. All right. You're good. I'm like, did I study the wrong passage? That's right. That's right. That's right. Oh, we're making you change. I'm sorry. Oh, he's he's got it. Marty's got it. Go for it, brother.
Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through uh, Phoenicia and Samaria. Okay, very good. Thank you, brother. All right, so we need to address a couple of things that are in view here. Because one of the things that goes wrong when we start talking about the law is people forget that there is indeed a universal moral law that God has put into his creation. What is in, that is not what is in view here. That, that is presupposed that you know we're not supposed to murder. We're not supposed to commit adultery. Those things are agreed upon. That's clear. And so let's set that aside. The question that is actually at hand is, do the Gentiles need to follow the ceremonial aspects of the law? Those things that are associated with, with what sometimes people will call covenant gnomism, uh, although I, I get nervous about what they mean by all that, uh, these are the things that made Jews look like Jews. They were the thing that set them apart ceremonial. Uh, they were important. They were supposed to have been obeyed. And yet, now that we've got Gentiles getting saved, there's this question, what do we do about it? The Pharisees... And those who are now being called the circumcision party are coming along saying, like, these guys are going to have to follow the law because, after all, they're being made Jews, right? They're in, they're saved, they're part of us, they're part of the nation of Israel. This is the promise. They need to do this, right? That's camp number one. Um, and this has to be worked through because, can I just say, this is really important, right? Like, if God commanded something... And if we're going to say that maybe he doesn't want it to be followed anymore, we got to be really sure about that. It's easy for us as Gentiles in the 21st century to just kind of dismiss it and say like, ah, these Pharisees just being Pharisees. No, no, no. Like, there's a real question here at hand. It needs to be dealt with. Okay? So let's hear the reasoning so that we understand because I don't want to dismiss it too fast. I want to get why we came to the conclusion we came to. All right, cool. Um, so keep in mind, Paul and Barnabas at the beginning of this are in Antioch. Judaizers have come up to Antioch and said, we got to get these boys circumcised. And they're like, mm, I don't think so. Let's go to Jerusalem and talk about this. Cool. All right. Somebody want to take verses 6 through, uh, let's do 6 through 11. Dan, go for it. Why 
do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. All right. Okay, so I want to pay attention to Peter. First of all, they take some time, they're discussing it. This is the apostles, the elders. This is what we would generally say from a church history perspective is the very first ecumenical church council. You could argue that it was an easier one to have since the church was not that big and hadn't spread but so far, right? But the idea here is that this is not something that Jesus has explicitly explained. Right? It's not like he sat down and said, guys, here's how it's going to work. The ceremonial aspects of the law are we're going to just kind of put those to the side because we're not going to need them anymore since I'm going to be the perfect sacrifice. And so when this gets to the Gentiles, don't worry about circumcising them. It's going to be fine. He doesn't explicitly say that. In the same way that we don't have Jesus or anywhere else in Scripture specifically explaining how the relationship between the three members of the Trinity go, how there's one God, the three, we see all of these elements there, but it's not like Jesus sat down and said, here's how you're going to state this simply, right? There needed to be some way in which we took the things that God had revealed and then organized them in a codified statement so that we know this is, this is how it works. This is how church councils work. If you look at the Council of Nicaea, one of the things that was coming up in Nicaea is that we had all of this Greek language related to essence, related to personhood, related to homoousios, and all these things that were, were not words that were used in the Hebrew language. And so now we have these Greeks with their Greek language and their Greek background, and they're trying to figure out, okay, well, I got a question because what I learned about how God's work looks like this how do you guys understand? And we're like, we don't even use those words. What are you talking about? And so we needed to answer a question doctrinally from the word of God, but say, okay, mm, there's false teaching coming up. We need to counter that and clarify. Make sense? Same kind of thing. This is how doctrine is developed, where there is an error that comes into place, or perhaps at times it's a legitimate question of language. It's like, I'm in a whole different culture with a whole different set of language, Help me understand what this means. And this is how we work through. It's usually error, by the way. Somebody comes up with a heresy, and we've got to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. That doesn't fit with what Scripture says, and here's why. And so we codify it in a theological statement. Everybody with me on this? What we're seeing here is the example of the first gathering to work through a big theological question. We have the benefit of seeing it happen in Scripture, and so we get kind of a lens as to, here's how, here's how we're doing some systematic theology. All right, with that in mind, what does Peter argue from? So there's been some discussion, and then Peter says what? What is the first thing that he brings up related to this? Yeah, so this is point number one. He's like, we have direct revelation from God here that the Gentiles needed to hear the gospel. So that's kind of like checkbox one. God had a plan for getting the gospel to the Gentiles. And then he mentions, he takes the gospel to them, he bears witness to them, and then it says that, um, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Okay, notice another thing here. So he's like, God commanded me to take the gospel to the Gentiles. I did. And then we saw that they got the Holy Spirit just like we did. Okay, 
What does that say about these Gentiles who, by the way, are not following the ceremonial law yet? They both got the Holy Spirit, which means they're saved. Right? So this is, no, this is not at all, a que- like what's in view here, and this is Peter's argument, that this is not a question as to whether or not these people are saved. Right? It's not that like, oh, these guys finally have believed in our God. Well, I mean, they have, praise the Lord. And oh, now we've got to get them obeying the law so they can be really saved. No, that's, that's not in view at all. Peter is saying, we know they're saved because they've got the Holy Spirit. In fact, he says... I bore witness by giving the Holy Spirit, just as he did, and he made no distinction between us and them. Um, That's a big deal, by the way. No distinction? There are those who still go about saying that Jews get saved through a different gospel than us. It's it's not true. I mean, this is very clear. Peter's saying, like, we got saved through faith, they got saved through faith, and he reiterates this. This is why are you putting God to the test? This is, now he's laying it on even heavier. He's saying, we know these guys are saved. The Holy Spirit. So why are you testing God further when he's already exhibited it with the Holy Spirit? Anyway, um, so he goes on to emphasize, he says, but we believe, uh, but we believe that we will, will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. All right, this is key. Notice, Peter is appealing to doctrinal things we already know in order to ask or to answer a theological question that has not been made explicit beforehand. Make sense? This is how systematic theology works. This is how doctrinal development works. We praise God for it. We get to watch it happen with actual apostles who have authority here. All right. Any questions so far? Cool. In that case, can I get someone to read verses 12 through 18? Oh, you got the, All right, Marty, go for it, man. Okay. Oh, this is interesting. This is really important. So first of all, the James that is speaking would be, as best we understand, Jesus' brother James, who has converted and we know later becomes the prominent leader of the Jerusalem church. Praise God. We're thankful for James. He'd obviously had, <laughs> he'd obviously had a lot of firsthand experience with Jesus, right? And he's bringing up important things. He's moving into a good role of leadership here. Peter, note, has already affirmed, listen, our Gentile brothers are our brothers. They've been saved through faith. There's a certain sense in which the question is, is, is answered. Now we have Paul and Barnabas, two witnesses, who have said, 
We took the gospel to Gentiles too. Here's what we're reporting. We're reporting all the same things. The Holy Spirit's moved in them. They're saved, you guys. This is awesome. Now, James has stood up, and James is bringing the scholarly prophetic history in here, and he cites Amos 9 and Isaiah 43, among other things. He actually seems to be pulling together a paraphrase of as many as like four different Old Testament prophecies, where he's saying, guys, the whole issue here is that God was going to raise up a remnant out of the brokenness of Israel. Now, how much did Jesus go around when in the gospel saying, like, you guys have failed. You guys have screwed this up. He's like, this is going to be taken from you and given to a people who will bear fruit. And notice what James is saying. He's like, guys, I think this is what we're seeing. Like, the gospel is going to the Gentiles. Everything that, I mean, this is even promised. So can we see kind of doctrinally what's happening? Peter is saying, we were told to go to the Gentiles. They got, we gave them the gospel. They got saved. It was evidenced by the Holy Spirit. Peter and Bar, or Paul and Barnabas are able to confirm the same thing. Now, now James is saying, guys, this is what was promised all along. This is not just in keeping with the evidence at hand. It's in keeping with what God has promised us from the prophets. Cool? That should be encouraging. All right. Now, let's. any questions so far? You guys are with me? Awesome. All right. So, could I get someone to read verses 19 through... Through 21. Let's do 19 through 21. Go for it, Kathy. Okay, can I ask this? Do you think that these are the most important things about obeying God? Not eating food sacrificed to idols, not eating strangled things, not eating, not drinking blood. Uh, and the strangled things seem to be like things that would still have blood in them. So this both case seems to be a blood issue. And then mention sexual immorality. Do these things seem to go together as far as level of importance? Not really, right? They don't seem to go together. Um, does, does the fact that they've left out, you know, like murder, mean that murder's okay? No, like the, there's no mention of lying being bad. Does that mean lying is okay? No, like it doesn't mean that that's okay. The idea here is that the moral law is still in view. So why are we mentioning meat sacrifice to idols and blood? Uh, that the Jews came out of. Oh, oh, you're saying that, that the Gentiles would have been doing these things? Okay, yes. All right. So I'm going to tell you what many scholars will, will argue from this that I tend to agree with. And that is that these are the things that would have gotten in the way of fellowship between Gentiles and Jews. If I, have, I mean, he says, like, we've been teaching this in every synagogue for generations, that you're not supposed to eat meat sacrificed to idols, you're not supposed to drink blood, like, and, and all of the Jews have been taught this, it's been built into them, um, maybe for the sake of fellowship, and this is, I'm speculating here, but for the sake of fellowship, the only ceremonial things that they're going to ask the Gentiles to do are those things related to eating 
so that we can have our brothers and sisters who are Gentiles and our brothers and sisters who are Jews sit around the same table and not have to have their conscience marred, right? Or, or have unnecessary debate. And so this is what many scholars will say is that's it. Others will say, no, this, was the, this is the part of the law that you need to obey. Otherwise, you're not a faithful Christian. And um, some will say that. Most scholars would say that the issue here is getting along with our brothers. Do we know of an exception to one of these things that Paul brings up later? Yeah. Later on, Paul brings up the food sacrifice to idols and says, like, uh, how about just don't, don't do what's against conscience? So if Paul, I mean, here he's part of the council that's agreeing that, like, don't do this. And later on, he's like, it's okay. Let's just not create uh, an, an offense. If we're going to look at this together, it seems that the whole issue with these things is we don't want to cause an offense to our brothers, right? It's not that this is going to be a sin to do these things. It's let's not cause an offense to the Jews who still are, are holding on to these things and that it's not necessarily bad that they do. All right, cool. Everybody with me on that? Yeah. You mentioned uh, offense for conscience, and I was just thinking back, you know, in 15, verse 8, it says, And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And we can kind of read over that and go, oh, yeah, okay. But I mean, God the Father gave the Holy Spirit, who is God, the life of God, and dwells in them. Mm-hmm. So in some sense, maybe you talk about conscience, like once you have the Holy Spirit, he starts to check you with things. We don't always listen. You know, like yeah. you say, like, then you're like, Lord, say, don't say that, don't say that. And you say it anyway, or you do something. Mm-hmm. You know, and if we would follow that a lot of times uh, with Scripture, but we would do better. Yeah, indeed. Defend people else, and, and Well, and... And Paul gets into this more later on in Galatians where he talks about you have the Holy Spirit. that You have what you need to obey God now. Um, well, as I often say, more on that later, probably not today, but more on that later. We're going we're gonna to have to dig into Galatians more. This is good. All right, so let's ask this other question. Uh, why is sexuality, sexual immorality brought up? Because can we just say that that one sure seems like a much bigger one than like accidentally eating food sacrificed to idols, Right? Um, and there are those who would argue that, like, oh, that was just for the time, too. Don't worry about that. There are those who try to make that argument. It's ridiculous. Why do they bring up sexual immorality? These other ones that seem to be about fellowship, why bring up that one? That seems much more important. Wouldn't it fit in the category of all the other ones that would go without saying, right? Don't murder, don't lie, don't steal, right? Why is this one getting special attention? Yeah, in, in many of the Greek, uh, the Greek cities, this would have been, you know, the meat sacrificed idols would have been tied to the worship, the, as would have been the sexual immorality. And so part of this saying, like, guys, you are leaving that. Um, and so we know that sexual immorality was a big thing for the Greeks, and it seems that, like, eh, that just needed special attention. All right, cool. Um, yeah, keeping in mind... So this verse 19, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but write to them to abstain from these things. 
All right, let's look a little bit further at what gets addressed here. Uh, John, do you want to, I know you've had your hand up and I've skipped over you, brother. Could I get you to read 20, uh, 22 through 29? Yeah. Uh, Cilicia, yeah. on brother thank you all right so uh, some key things about the decision making here we've already seen kind of the logic for the decision we've we've speculated as to the reason why these are the things mentioned and I think they're good reasons I think we've I think it's reasonable here for us to think that that's what they're getting at and now they've written this letter notice they're sending witnesses along with Paul and Barnabas note this Silas guy who's going along with them um, and they've got this letter it's been delivered. It's clearly communicating. They're like, listen, we did not send those people to tell you those things. So don't think that we're changing our mind. Um, and also, the apostles and elders got together. And this is the decision we've made together. It seems good to us. Then later on, it says, uh, has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. The implication here is that the Holy Spirit was with them in the decision-making, that this is a from God, not merely a practical, like, ah, this will just be easier, but that the Holy Spirit has guided this decision. Praise God, and this is what is delivered to the church at Antioch. Uh, we will also note that this is what Paul, when he's writing uh, to the Galatians, he reiterates this further. If you'll notice in Galatians, he gets a little bit more harsh because people are going around continuing to teach falsely that you need to obey the ceremonial law to be saved. And Paul says, listen, I told you, because it's the gospel that is at stake. And he says, I'm telling you, if even me or one of us or an angel from heaven shows up and teaches you another gospel, let him be accursed. Strongest language possible for damnation. It's, a curse doesn't punch us in the face anymore. Even to say damned doesn't punch us in the face anymore. But that's, he's getting at eternal suffering for those who would teach another gospel. And these absolutely has the ceremonial Judaizers in view as he's doing this. Uh, later on, he even says, I wish those who are troubling you to circumcise yourselves would just go ahead and, and he essentially says, just make a deeper cut. Um, and I'm trying to think, it's funny, like when we're reading, we're, we're addressing scripture and I'm having to paraphrase Paul, um, but Paul pulls no punches because he's like, the gospel is at stake. And this is why we're making such a big deal of it. 
This was critical for the spread of the gospel, that we wouldn't say the gospel plus anything. And that has been the battle that we have carried on throughout church history. It's always been someone pushing the gospel plus. Or, as we see with the antinomians, those who are are saying it's the gospel and so nothing else matters. Well, that's a different kind of error, but it's also an error. And what he's getting at here is that, like, it's the gospel plus nothing, guys. Morality matters, but you don't earn anything. Cool? All right, I think everybody's with us on this. All right, so I'm going to read verse 30 uh, and into the next section. It says, So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. This would be really good news to a Gentile guy who's really thinking about, like, what am I going to have to do? Because it's not just the circumcision, right? That's, un- that's uncomfortable, to say the least. But the idea is all of the ceremonial law, all of it, like that we're going to have to go we're going to have to do sacrifices we're going to have to have phylacteries and tassels and the whole thing and oh my how are we going to do this you guys like I just can't and part of the argument that Peter made is that like we couldn't either you guys we never could that's part of the point we never could let's not lay on this burden again doesn't mean antinomianism it means they're not going to earn it it's not going to happen all right cool um, it says, and Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with so many others also. Praise God. Good news. Big clarification happened. All right. So I want us to think about, like, this is pretty big. And, like, you can't get much much more unity than this, right? Like the biggest potential division in the church just got handled. There should be high-fiving. You know, we've, we've handled, man, we've handled this. Like everybody's on the same page. This is great. And then pay attention to what happens here at the end. It says, And after some days, Paul, and Barnab- uh, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we, pro- we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Anybody remember John called Mark? There were some meetings that they happened that happened at John Mark's mom's house, um, and he went with them. As we understand, this is Barnabas's nephew. He went with them on the first missionary journey, and we see. I think it's in early in chapter 13. He just went home. There's no explanation. There's no details on it. He just went home. So Paul wants to go. Barnabas is ready to go, and he says, "Let's take John Mark." But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas, no, really, really quickly. Is this a doctrinal essential here that they're fighting over? Well, no, like not at all. This is Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And they went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Okay, so does this create a problem for us? We have a non-essential, not even a doctrinal issue. We have a practical issue 
of this guy wants to bring his nephew, and Paul says, no, man, he failed his last time. Don't bring him. He's just going to be a headache. I'm paraphrasing Paul a little bit, what I'm assuming he said. And if we read some of the things that Paul said, I mean, in, in mind, he, comes, he reminds me of like a Martin Luther who would say things that were true, but at times a little brashly. I mean, for crying out loud, we just heard what he said to the Galatians, right? And I wonder sometimes, like, is this a personality disagreement? I don't know. They hung out together for a long time. I don't know that it's personality. What we do know is that there's just this very basic practical issue, but they disagreed enough that they were not going to work together anymore. All right? Um, it does say, though, that they're commended. Or at least Paul is. I think, I think we can assume Barnabas was. So are they in sin? I don't think they are. There's no reference to them sinning. They disagree, and they go their separate ways. I'm going to say, I think there's room, based on what we see here in Acts 15, I think there's room for this. Where it's like, I want to do it this way, you want to do it that way. (sighs) I don't think this is going to work out, man. Now, I want to offer some encouragement. Um, Sorry, that was verse chapter 12 where they had this disagreement, if I'm remembering right. Sorry. Um, Does anybody know, Paul writes his last letter of the pastoral epistles, as as far as we understand, it's his very last letter, is 2 Timothy. And in 2 Timothy 4, verse 11, he actually says, would you send John Mark to me? Because he's beneficial for my ministry. And I I think it's pretty cool that the guy that they fought over, and he's like, he doesn't say these words, but it's kind of like, we can't trust him. He's not really worth it. He's going to be a headache. That at the end of his life, he's like, would you send John Mark, who will comfort me and encourage and support? I need him. He's beneficial to ministry. This is exactly what he says. So I'm, not, I'm paraphrasing, I'm sorry, but he's talking about him being beneficial to the work. And I think there's something cool here. Some time separates them, and, uh, and he's like, ah, that guy's important. Anybody else know anything about this John Mark guy? Anybody happen to know what else he does that's kind of important? According to the church fathers, our best evidence we have is that he wrote the book of Mark. <laughs> so I think he was useful for ministry. <laughs> um, So, all that said, important church history there. I want to encourage us, because there is every now and then where I have faithful brothers and sisters that are like, wait a minute, do I need to obey the law of Moses? And there are some that really get questioning. We we talked once about the Hebrew Roots movement. We've talked about other movements where they're really pushing that. I'm just going to say, I I think it's just Judaism. Um, I think it's a completely different thing when we say, let's take the civil law and use that as a template for making laws now, right? Because like, hey, murder is wrong. I think we should have laws against that, right? Or when we take the moral law and say, let's seek to obey God. I mean, this is what he has communicated. And all of that is in view. But if somebody tries to get me to make sacrifices, I'm going to be like, listen, man, I mean, I, I, there's, I don't find any reason for it. If you try to get me to circumcise, I... I just can't find a biblical support for it. Cool? We're saved by grace alone through faith alone, brothers and sisters. And that is the one crux of the argument that Peter brings up. All right, uh, let's pray, and then I forget who's on for the gospel. Awesome, thank you. Jill. (laughs) All right, Father God, um, thank you that you revealed your holiness in the law. Uh, you made it so clear with the, the civil aspects of the law, with the very clear moral aspects of the law, 
And then when you knew that we couldn't live up to either of those things, you provided opportunities for ceremonial cleanliness to point forward to Jesus and his atoning death and resurrection. Uh, And so, Lord, with his perfect sacrifice, there is no need for sacrifices, and we praise you. And um, we are baptized into your body by your Holy Spirit, and thus uh, we no longer need circumcision to identify us as your people. I praise you for that, Lord. I praise you that I am indeed saved by grace through faith, that you have sent your Holy Spirit. Uh, God, may we faithfully proclaim this gospel. Um, Would you give us boldness in it, Um, assurance to those who would doubt, and boldness in knowing that it is your gospel that saves us, it is your work. Receive glory in this time. And then, Lord, also this little bit at the end, uh, help us to know how to work well with one another, part ways when it's necessary, and, uh, and have faithful love for each other and for you uh, even then. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.